0: <laughs> okay. So speaking of philosophy majors, Ed. I, okay, we've got we we've had um we've meant for a while to bring this fellow on the show, uh, and I I, I I think that uh, well that we haven't. I'm just going to blame it on you. Sound good? <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Honestly, there's no good reason that we've kept him off for so long. Um, I said at the beginning of the show, you know, we want to help this this uh, this Canadian philosopher, this fellow. He really, you know, get the word out about him that he's out there. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we we want to make sure that we help with that. In truth, again, I speak in jest. Mm-hmm. This is Canada's premier liberty philosopher. He is uh, he's listened to around the world. He is uh, viewed around the world. You can find any number of his publications online, also at freedomainradio.com. Um, also, that is online. <laughs> I, I Sometimes I make myself feel like I'm 80. Um, okay, but anyway, we're going to bring him on the line now. It's Stéphane Molyneux. Thank you very much for joining us today, and it is a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks. I, I like that introduction. Um, Canada's premier liberty philosopher is like, I am the blondest guy in Sierra Leone. <laughs> Because, you know, I don't know how long that list is, you know. It's like my brother when I was growing up, you know, if I was crapped at him or whatever, he'd be like, come on, who's your favorite brother? Who's your favorite brother out of all the brothers you have? Of course, I had only one brother. Uh, so he fit the bill right. of the favorite and least favorite at the same time. But listen, it sounds good if you don't know the context, and that's what I'm all about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well honestly I mean amongst uh, Liberty philosophers around the world uh, you know I, I don't know anybody else really who does it full-time on the web with the exposure that you have mm-hmm. uh, so frankly uh, premier Liberty philosopher at least in the in the in the hemisphere that you're in um, so I don't know I, I think that the title is uh, well deserved uh, even if you well don't I appreciate know
1: that podcast. and we are of course approaching 50 million downloads of the show so um, guess mm-hmm. I guess with your audience that would be 50 Fifty million and two. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, and, and I'm counting you as the two. No, I'm kidding. I appreciate being on the show. <laughs> Listen, I just I have a lot of passive aggression. For those who don't know the the background to this um, to this sordid uh, uh, interview, um, I was contacted yesterday by the fine hosts here saying we have gone through everything. C- <laughs> Every conceivable guest we might have, they're either unavailable uh, in a morgue. They've turned into mimes and therefore aren't very good for podcasting. So, dear God, we are right down at the bottom of the list. Steph, can you come on the show tomorrow? And that is a late-night drunken booty call. And I would like to say that I have the pride to not accept it. But I, I, since I'm here, I really can't say that.
0: <laughs> well, honestly, you know, it's it's really unfortunate because things really did start to discombobulate for us just yeah. uh, about a day and a half ago. And well, you know, I mean, uh, like I said to you in my message, Steph, I didn't mean to make you feel like the less pretty girl at the ball. I mean, but but, but here we are. <laughs>
1: just kidding. Um, no, I'm happy to be here. i you know, whatever circumstances work to bring us together. Um, you know that that your your cleaning ladies were unavailable for an interview that your your <laughs> hamsters still haven't mastered multi-dimensional speech. Whatever it is that has occurred to bring us together, I'm happy because uh, it's a good show.
0: Those hamsters are close. I'll have you know. Um, so, Steph, let's let's get into something that I wanted to get your take on something in speci- uh, in particular. Uh, this was uh, now for those who've been paying attention to the Canadian political scene. First off, we offer our apologies for your uh, for your mental damage, but also um, mm. you may have noticed the "Idle No More" movement in Canada. We talked about it on our previous show, yes, and uh, it, it it certainly hasn't dropped off in terms of relevance. "Idle No More" is out there and it is active. Um, but the the uh, I wanted to talk about uh, a, a birthright to, to land. Mm-hmm. So we've got this concept that uh, if you were there first, you and your descendants have land, and that's a uh, that uh, you you have a, a certain sort of a claim to that land. And I'm curious, Steph, uh, what's your take on this is in in regards to that concept. Do you believe? that we can have a a birthright, uh, a claim that is uh, uh, born of lineage uh, to a certain chunk of land.
1: Yeah, I I don't think so. Uh, I think that's really hard to defend. I mean, the the native issues, and this is true not, of course, just in Canada, though we have, as a country, a very sordid history of dealing with the native population. But um, in general, there's a collision between individual property rights within land— which, of course, is fundamentally around you know, hunting, hunting, but mostly focused, of course, on, on agriculture so, and, and building houses and so on. But, but fundamentally, it's, it's sort of around agriculture. And when cultures based upon private ownership of land come into collision with nomadic cultures, I mean, there's a huge mismatch, right? Because in the nomadic culture, you're basically following the hunt. Right, you're following the herds, you're following the hunt, and so your property right, so to speak, is on the move. Right, it's it's got four mm. legs, a burr stuck to its ass, and it's heading off into the tundra. And so the challenge is when you have property rights that are individual land based I mean, you, your wheat is not in in transit. <laughs> you know, you plant your fruit trees, and they're not picking up their skirts and sashaying off into the sunset. And so having Ownership over land and a fixed resource like crops uh, or a house or whatever versus having, quote, ownership or, or control over something in motion is, is a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And uh, unfortunately, the way it's attempted to be solved in most Western countries when they encounter these kinds of different cultures is communism, is, is collectivism, is, is treating the indigenous population as a mass. Uh, and, and a group. And I think that's that's been really tragic. So, I mean, as you probably know, and we've got a Department of Indian Affairs up here in Canada, which is, you know, where I thought you would sign up to get some kinky fun with the First Nations people. But that's not <laughs> what it is. Um, after many repeated phone calls. Uh, I actually can't call them anymore. But um, uh, but, uh, you know, you have seven billion dollars a year being spent on about seven hundred thousand people. That's ten thousand dollars a head. So imagine you know, if you really wanted to solve the problem, you'd, you'd put all that money, 10,000 bucks a year into an annuity, and then anyone born now would pull a clear quarter million dollars when they turned 18. But of course, that's not how it works, because government agencies never work to put themselves out of work. And so you have this just tragic and ridiculous situation where the money is generally given to the uh, tribal heads, and then the tribal heads dispense it, which is kind of weird. It's like, hey, I'm going to give you a job, but I'm going to pay your grandfather, and he'll give you money if he likes what you're doing. I mean, that's just not how we would ever deal with uh, with people uh, outside of a particular localized ethnic uh, or geographical group. And I mean, it's just really tragic. And so, what what people are afraid of, and I think this is what this woman who is on this, um, I think, uh, fish broth diet um, to to sort of protest mm, right. against some suspense, yeah. yeah. So so she's basically one of the things she's very concerned about is that individual. Native Canadians or First Nations people might actually gasp, you know, oh, God, take your petticoats up. I mean, let's just get out the smelling salts. They might actually have the right to buy and sell their own land on a reservation. Can you imagine? I, it goes, I mean, giving I the same rights it... to Native Canadians that other North Americans have had for <laughs> hundreds of years? I mean, it's unthinkable because everyone's afraid they're yeah, going to sell their land and then, uh, you know, break up this uh, sort of tribal, quote, cohesion and so on. But I don't think you can hold people hostage. Let them buy and sell their own land. I mean, treat them as individuals, not as a collective and Mm -hmm. see what happens. Sure.
0: I, no, I, th- I think it goes deeper than that too, Steph, uh, because like, it, it, we have in Canada a fantastically racist piece of legislation uh, called, uh. of course, the Indian Act. And and we've talked about it on the show here before uh, that the Indian Act is essentially uh, a, a top-down controlling act that controls a lot of uh, things. I, I think people in general might not know uh, about how deep the control runs. Oh, I mean, horrible. even to, if a, if a native band wants to pass a bylaw, it has to be controlled. Uh, considered and approved by Indian Affairs. Um, There, until very recently, there were provisions, uh, or was it, I can't remember, there was something about you couldn't sell produce uh, produced on reserve to non-natives. There have been so many Uh. obstructions here from government that has absolutely crushed any possibility of uh, a native sort of independence, and 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 we when we talk about, uh, I think removing that government influence, that uh, that giant hand that is so uh, uh, in my mind oppressive, it's terrible. Uh, when we talk about that, I see the response is often uh, an accusation that uh, uh, what I want to do is is um. bring a, a colonial sort of attitude and 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 mm-hmm. model. To uh, yeah. reserve life, to Indian life in Canada,
1: uh, I, I don't want. This, <laughs> this is colonial freedom. This is colonial. Telling people how they can use their own property, treating them like children, uh, putting their the, the control over their lives and resources into the hands of often corrupt tribal elders. I mean, that is colonial. Well, treating people as equals, treating people as responsible, right? I mean, one of the problems with with trying to deal sensibly with native issues is that there's such a, a terrible amount of guilt-ridden uh, sentimentality, and I, you know, sentimentality can, I think, be rightly viewed as an unwillingness to grant people the responsibility of making their own decisions. And and I just think it's it, it mm-hmm. is colonial to to say to people how you can use your resources. I mean, try and and try and build some. Uh, some capital investment on on native lands, I mean the number of hoops that you would have to jump through legally is so catastrophic and so high that almost no investment gets put into these places, which is why I mean the average Canadian income for a family of four is twenty six twenty seven thousand dollars a year on an indian reservation it 's about eleven thousand no oh. and and that 's because there 's no private i mean this is the difference between. East Germany and West Germany, I mean, they're, they're stuck mm. in this complete socialist central planning nightmare, something out of, you know, Khrushchev's wet dream of infinite government ownership. It's just horrible. We know exactly how to create wealth. It's private property. It's the rule of law. It's contracts. It's all that kind of good stuff, non-aggression principle. And it's not being applied. We have these completely separate standards. And uh, it is um, – it's tragic. You know, the, the, the closer you get to government power, the worse your income tends to get. Right? You can see this with ghettos in the U.S. You can see this with the reservations. I think the only people who could even remotely defend some this kind of system are people who have never been exposed to it. Like when I was um, – after high school, I wanted to go to college, but I was flat broke. So I got a job as a, a gold panner and a prospector way up in northern Ontario. And there were a lot of Indian reservations around up there. I mean – and it was savagely wretched Uh, what was going on. Um, I mean, I come out of the bar at one o'clock in the morning and there'd be like, you know, dirty three year old kids with no pants and no underwear wandering around uh, while their parents were drinking. I was driving back to the um, camp one night after being in town and there's this woman stumbling and staggering along the side of the road. It's a native woman. And I stopped the car and asked if she's okay. And she said, uh, no, I'm not okay. I was in the pack. I was in the back of a pickup truck being driven back to the reservation with four other guys in the truck, and they wanted blowjobs, and I wouldn't give them one, and they threw me out of the car without even slowing down. So, of course, wow. I take her to the hospital. I make sure she's, she's doing okay, I mean, at least in the moment. But, I mean, this is not universal because, I mean, some Native entrepreneurs are doing fantastically, but it is savage what is going on. Uh, it, it, it is shameful, uh, and, and anybody who wants to maintain the status quo, I can only assume has never been anywhere close to the kind of horrors that are going on there.
2: And see, Steph, you bring up a good point um, talking about and how, how how they treat each other, and uh, in their communities, and it's and it's horrible. And the fact and when we point these things out, or some people point these things out, we get thrown a racist label gets put on people who try to criticize them. And um, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, no, You're, because look, because clear because trying to right? understand. Sorry, but trying to understand how these situations are so disastrous right so it's sort of like saying well so what you're saying is that they treat each other badly because they're somehow inferior as a species or a race and nothing could be further from the truth nothing and we, we know this we know this very clearly uh, that there's no doubt as to this is nothing to do with racism whatsoever it's fun it's frankly to do with ethics and economics like are we going to say like you know how for instance um in in uh india like 30, 40, 50,000 people a month are coming out of poverty into the middle class. Over the last wow. 10, 15 years, a greater proportion of human beings have escaped poverty than at any time prior – like to the previous four trillion years or whatever it is, right? And, and are we going to say, well, you see, the reason that you know, Indians and Chinese and other people who are now gaining a huge amount of wealth, the reason they didn't do it before was that they were just genetically lazy as culture, as a species, but somehow, mm-hmm. weirdly, their genetics just magically changed when they got access to a free market and the rule of law and private property. <gasps> their genes just they evolved in, in the space. It just <laughs> happened to coincide with this massive increase in their political and economic freedoms. No. If I was in that situation, I would almost certainly be the same way. If you were in the situation the natives are, you know, what happened with Russians? Under, were, were they just genetically not entrepreneurial under Stalin? No, they just didn't have um, the private property and the rule of law. And uh, when you give groups uh, the, the individual responsibility, private property and the rule of law, you're no longer dealing with them as collective entities. You're no longer giving money to their leaders where it trickles down depending on – favoritism and corruption, magically, suddenly, their capacities enormously change. And so this is just another example of collectivized, communistic, socialistic, common ownership, uh, political uh, money, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and what it does to a culture. It's got no even the race. It's just to do with, with treating them immorally. So, Steph, we're talking with uh, Steph M.
0: Molyneux with freedomainradio.com. Steph, do you believe that this is something that uh, uh, natives in Canada are getting caught up in, it, uh, th- this identity? Uh, but by this, mm, I should explain this yeah. better. Uh, I think that one of the major problems uh, mistakes the uh, native movement in Canada makes is first off being a native movement, um, and not <laughs> and not clinging to the idea that uh, uh, they too are just other human beings. Uh, do do you think that I'm on the right track here? That that, that there's an identification of, of flaw here in this idea that they are different. They are natives, flaw. and we are not, and there's a clear separation. Do you think that they should abandon that?
1: Well, I you know I. I think that they would abandon that, except that it's highly profitable for them to pursue it, at least for their leaders, right? So mm-hmm. if, if let's say let's say that the majority of the native population really enjoys you know, hunting, trapping, fishing, whatever it is, right? So, I mean, when I used to work uh, up in, in northern Ontario, uh, we would hire the natives to do some of our sort of claim staking, and particularly to cut parts through the bush uh, because they were just so good at it and, and all this experience and so on. So if the majority of, uh, of Native Canadians, Native Americans, want to have that kind of life, Lord knows, at least here in Canada, which is like 0.01% populated, there's enough room for them to pursue that, then what we do is we, we stop treating them as a collective, right? So you say, okay, there's some historical obligations, here's your money, here's your land, and it's individual, you can buy and sell. So if 90% of the tribe want to continue their way of life, then giving them all private ownership of their land is not a problem because they're not going to sell their land. They're going to use it for their hunting, trapping, fishing, whatever it is that they want to do. But but nobody in a million years believed that that's ever going to happen, which is why it's not achieved. And one of the reasons why this woman is on this diet, this this hunger strike. Sorry, I shouldn't call it diet. It's a hunger strike. Why she's on this hunger strike is well, that really she's terrified that – Well, okay, but it's, she's eating less than I would in any particular uh, eight-minute <laughs> okay. period. Um, but But everybody knows that if you give – I mean, this has been done before. I, I think it was Wyoming uh, about 150 years ago. They simply gave land plots to all the Indians. And they said, look, I mean, here here you go. Here's your land, uh, and here's some money, and we're done. And, like, within a generation, the the land was all sold off, and, and they'd all joined in the free market, such as it was. And uh, that's – right, so so nobody believes that if natives have the choice – and as individuals, not as tribes or collectives or whatever – as individuals – Nobody believes that if you give them all this land and, and the money that, that's owed to them historically, fine, whatever, right? I mean, <laughs> nobody is alive who took the land, but okay, right? But um, th- they would sell the land off, most likely, and they would join uh, society. And uh, uh, and people don't want that because it's highly profitable, frankly, to keep them farmed on these reservations like hostages, like crops, and to pretend mm-hmm. that there's some yeah. sort of collective notion. It, it's it's incredibly profitable, 7 billion dollars a year at a minimum of profitability both for the government agencies and for the tribal chiefs and so on but that's just horrendous i mean let's not stop treating these people as children as hostages give them each individually their money give them the same framework of law and if they choose not to exercise it that's fine if they all want to live collectively and hunt and fish i mean i don't care <laughs> do what you want but for those who want something different i really hate the idea that they don't for instance have the right to use their tribal lands as collateral they can't buy and sell it i mean how insane is that
2: yeah, um, we. I was reading an article um, about Idle No More, and the uh, title of the article was "Natives should stop subsidizing Canada." So stop subsidizing Canadians. And what he was referring to was um, all the infrastructure and the power and the coal and the natural resources that are being extracted from the natives' land. Uh, and he was basically saying that these criminal treaties were signed, and it was this is actually still our land, and we are actually providing Canadians with more than. Uh, even though that they weren't the ones that it, se- set that it seems stuff to obviously.
0: me that this is just I, I you know the more I think about this it seems like it's it's a more of a, a socialist movement it's not really a native movement ah. is it? it it seems like it's a socialist movement um, maybe I've been thinking about it the wrong way. Uh, because I, I I really have been trying to determine what is the validity of that clear separation. you know i I, I talked to you Ed about uh, the, the fact that I mean I, I mentioned my my uh, Semitic heritage, yes. just because it's it's fun. it doesn't really actually mm-hmm. mean much of anything no. to me right and and I've mentioned before as well about uh, how having a, a claim to land in Israel doesn't make any sense to me uh, well why I, I don't have any interest in land in Israel, but there is a legal right that exists uh, for me to take land. Yeah. I, I don't know that that's correct, but yeah, when you talk about, that that really did, that did click with me. When you talk about how the assertion is, you know, natives are subsidizing Canada. Well, that's it, isn't it? I think that's that collective ownership, mm-hmm. the collective rule, it is just a kind of a socialist uh, uh, movement. So I'm, I, I don't mean to seem cruel, but I... I Start really discounting it more. The more I think of it, um, so I I don't know, Steph. <laughs> maybe I'm off on the wrong track here, but that's what it seems like to me.
1: No, I I mean I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, if they want to be independent of Canadian society, then of course they could be independent of Canadian society. But that means fundamentally get your hand out of my wallet. Right? And, and if they don't want to be independent of Canadian society, if they want to be part of Canadian society, then be part of Canadian society, which means be subject to the same laws and uh, obligations, whatever it is.
0: But, I don't um, even want that. Yeah, I th- mean,
1: you you say
0: you say that that you know that fundamentally uh, you get your hand on my wallet. For me, it's not even really that because, I, it really, in terms of proportion, uh, native Canadians, uh, I guess, by direct subsidy, have their hand in in my wallet in a more shallow fashion than some others. But, but I, I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of just general philosophy, I I think it's very odd to, okay. I, I said it like this before. Uh, you, if if you are a, a native organization and you are appealing to government to uh, to continue to, uh, to you know meet your treaty obligations, work with us properly, all this, and it's been going on for years and years and years. It it seems like a battered housewife saying, you know, mm. if only my husband would stop hitting me, the relationship will get better, rather than extricating themselves from that relationship. So why why would the Native peoples as a movement, if this really is a movement, a, a group sort of idea, just remove yourselves from the bloody relationship? I don't see why one would cling to treaties that have been so badly abused over yeah. many years under an Indian Act that uh, at one point had uh, Indian agents that could uh, direct council meetings. I mean, don't get we started on Indian agents. That is another yeah. absolute travesty well,
2: of, of, of warping humanity. The intention of the Indian Act and the reservations was to essentially just put them on these small little areas so they would just die off and we're not to oh, worry yeah. about them anymore. Well, you, you used know? to have to get a certificate of permission to bloody well leave the Disgusting. place. This is
0: not. This is not humanity. This is not a, a system from which moral
2: good arises.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a system from which moral good can only arise
2: once it's burnt to the ground. You know, I, I see I see Native reservations as concentration camps. I, I, that's that's how I see them, and that's how that's how they were originally set up. So I see them just as an extension of that. What are uh, what are your thoughts, Steph?
1: Well, I think concentration camps is I mean, it's pretty strong because I mean concentration camps were around <laughs> direct you know, shoot him in the head, extermination or, you know, Zoloft. Or, sorry, not Zoloft, but Zyklon B or whatever it is that they uh, mm-hmm. were putting mm-hmm. in this. I mean, certainly Canada has, I think, been, if I remember rightly, it's been uh, accused of, uh, of the war crime of genocide against the native population. There's certainly, I mean, the, the whole resida- the the residential school system where the, mm. the Roman Catholic Church uh, hired known murderers and pedophiles and put them in charge of children and also um, uh, the other areas where the government purposefully infected uh, children and, and let uh, tooth rot set in in order to study the effects. I mean, uh, the inhumanity of, of what has gone on in the past is, is something truly horrifying. And of course, you would think that it would then be uh, you sort of have a relationship between the natives and the government somewhat similar, at least uh, in terms of ideology between the Jews and uh, Nazis, as in, let's not have them be in charge anymore. But unfortunately, there's just there's too much money. There's too much power flowing that way. And that tends to corrupt, you know, money, free money and power. Particularly those uh, that that throw uh, flow through the violence of the state do tend to corrupt uh, all that it comes in contact with. And I think that's what's been occurring. But you know, really, what are the? It's it's like that old saying that I think Jefferson had about slavery. You know, we've got a a wolf by the ears, and we can't let it go, and we can't let it eat us, and, yeah. and we're really kind of stuck, right? So. So what happens? I mean, what benefit would there be in any particular politician? People have such ridiculous, uh, sentimental, and guilt-ridden views of this whole situation that if you were to try to change anything, there would be, of course, armed revolts, and the media would be like showing pictures of sad-eyed natives looking off into the sunset about further betrayal by the forked tongue white man or whatever it is. So you're not in a situation where any kind of rational discourse... It's like race in the U.S. It's, it's almost impossible to have an objective rational discourse uh, about it because there's it's so much emotional volatility so much corruption so much money sloshing around and uh, it's you know i don't think it would be to any particular benefit of any particular politician to to take this issue on
0: well that's it i i, I really think that that's the the crux of the issue for me here is these these people are no different than any other people they are no different than Nothing. myself. They are no different than anybody else in terms mm-hmm. of their core humanity. Mm-hmm. These are just other human beings, and I really don't like those lines of division that we create. Those lines of division that are embraced in order to uh, further uh, or the or, or supposedly further the uh, the uh, the benefit further the benefits of a, of a group of people. I, honestly, uh, the the more we are removed from our independent. Uh, uh, powers of self-determination. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, exactly. The, the, the less better off we'll be in the long term, I, I, or even in the short term. It does none of this makes any sense it's, to it's me. So I guess I get up. so frustrated. The
2: incentive system is screwed up. The way that we treat them, the way that they treat their kids. You know, it, it's it's like a the to fix to really fix this problem, we really need to get, raise the children differently and uh, stop subsidizing and stop. But again, you say something like that, um, like stop subsidizing them, st- um, uh, to stop allowing them special rights, and you get called a racist. Even by so, like, with, um, some
1: liberals would say this. Uh, Isn't it, that crazy? It to you, you know? I want to treat them as equals. You racist? Now wait, 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 wait. Wasn't that the whole point? <laughs> Of egalitarianism, <laughs> wasn't that a whole point of not being like, do you want me to treat them differently or not? If you want me to treat them differently, then that's racism. If you want me to treat them the same and you call me a racist, then your whole program doesn't make any sense. But we know, we know, I mean, God, can we not learn this lesson, this lesson from the 20th century that whatever you socialize turns to crap and violence and ugliness and abuse and, and debt and dysfunction and mess? And whatever you privatize, gets better, improves, gets more efficient, gets more productive, gets more moral, uh, achieves some sort of dignity where people have responsibility and and so on. Whatever you socialize turns to crap. Whatever you privatize improves. That's the basic lesson of the 20th century. And I guess my cry would be, can we at least start to think maybe a little bit about the possibility of treating native Canadians with the same respect we accord to the goddamn wheat? (laughs) You know, now we've (laughs) privatized some aspects of buying and selling wheat. You know, we've moved yeah. some of that from central management into the free market. Can we at least think of treating human beings with the same respect, dignity, and independence and ethics with which we will treat a farm crop? I think that would not be a bad thing to consider.
2: <laughs> I, th- I think I think a, f- a good start would allowing them to own property on reserve. I don't know. That just seems like a pretty, uh, you know, I, the I think, uh, honestly, drop in the bucket.
0: I, yeah, well, that, that's right. Yeah, I, I think it's just a drop in the bucket. Again, I, I look at the Indian Act. I see a racist piece of legislation. Yep. One of the incredibly controlling. It makes as much sense so, to me as a Jewish so act. So,
2: Ethan, it think does- about that. Then, okay. So the the Indian Act is a racist piece of legislation. Then why are the. Uh, the native leaders oh, supporting okay, it. So we
0: can get right? into... like I we, we need to end off this segment here uh, due to uh, timing conflict, but we, we... I mean, honestly, we could get into the entire industry of, of bureaucracy that exists within mm-hmm. First Nations mm-hmm. and how it's, it's, it's just another government, right? You get down yes. to it, because we complain endlessly about the government here on this show, that mm-hmm. that is whitey government, if you want to call it that in the context of this discussion, but honestly, it's government, 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 it's all the same bloody thing. You get down to it, it is people who want to control the actions and even the intentions of others bang even if they don't want you can't control others intentions but never mind this all goes completely over um it, it, it's it's completely ignored human action is ignored in, in, in favor of uh, of a particular agenda because of a utopian world view it is absolutely nonsensical and ridiculous I think I'm going to uh, have to go and dump a bucket of cold water on myself so Steph <laughs> thank you so much for coming yes. on the show and providing your insight into this uh, I honestly I'd make this discussion a good hour or two long if I could but uh, it is nonetheless a pleasure to have you here for the short time we were able
1: Oh, and my pleasure. Uh, I just wanted to mention as we close out that, you know, the woman who's uh, on the hunger strike, uh, she was begging for lots of resources because apparently her people, her 1,500 or 1,800 person community in the middle of nowhere was doing badly. And it turns out that audits have shown that millions of dollars went missing or is unaccounted for from 2005 onwards. Uh, And so it's just it's just another scam. Uh, It's just another scam, and and it comes at the expense of incredibly high uh, drug abuse, of course, as we know, alcohol abuse, Uh child abuse, suicides, drinking, copier fluid, because it's the only way you can stagger through the day. Uh, It is a true apocalypse of the human spirit that is occurring uh, in these black holes of socialism that remain as the rest of the world struggles to free itself of collectivism. We seem to be embedding it even further in some of the most vulnerable communities, and it's their very vulnerability that leads them open to that kind of exploitation and um, we're not going to get anywhere listening to politicians or native activists we just have to go back to the ethics and say people are people and um, whatever we accord and respect and require in ourselves uh, a free market in land a free market in in goods and services a free market in in labor and capital well we know that works we know that's virtuous we know that's good and we just need to keep working to extend that across the human landscape as much as possible, in the face of dictatorships in North Korea, uh, in the face of still socialist bureaucracies all around the world, in the face of the E-E- uh, EEC, in, in the face of, of fiat currency, and in the face of these um, uh, these terrible black souls of central planning left over from a very primitive uh, state of mind as far as economics and virtue goes. And we just we just keep pushing. That's all we can do. Indeed. We may not
0: get anywhere listening to politicians, but indeed no. we may get somewhere listening to Stefan Molyneux. So thanks again, yes, Stefan. Really do appreciate it. Thank uh, you so much. And we'll, we'll speak again. My
1: pleasure. Have a great show, guys.
0: Stefan Molyneux with FreedomainRadio.com, uh, a Canadian author and, uh, like I said, the premier philosophy of liberty and uh, human action in Canada.